pen, please, and hear God's Word. Uh, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses uh, 1 through 5. Let me read this to you, and I'll, I'll give you some context as we go along uh, through the sermon. This is God speaking through the Apostle Paul. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, four years ago, I was uh, privileged uh, to take a sabbatical, and it, it was um, there were a few pastors in our presbytery that had taken sabbaticals before that, but the Lord has done um, a neat work. Uh, in the elders of this congregation and in other congregations to where this is uh, now becoming um, common, the sort of common that's good, uh, the sort of common where it's recognized that the particular calling that pastors have is a difficult one. Um, and so um, a brief uh, interval uh, from the strains of ministry is important. One of the things that you can pray for Nate, and maybe your elders have already prepared you for this, but one of the things that you can pray for Nate to happen over the course of his summer is that he can find out again who he is as a child of God, not in relationship to him being a pastor, but simply him before the Lord, him as a husband, him as a father. Uh, because uh, the work of a pastor is so personal and relational, it's very easy, even uh, for those who tr of us who've tried hard not to become overly um, entangled is probably the right word. But really what it is is it's our hearts get entangled with our own expectations, with people's expectations, and we forget, well, really, we, we forget what we learn in this passage that it's just before the Lord that any one of us stands. That includes your pastor. And so pray for him. Um, it's uh, a privilege for me to, to be here and sort of orient you a little bit uh, to what it's like to be a congregation who's experiencing a sabbatical. Um, it's disquieting for you as well. 
It's odd not to have your pastor here. It's also good for you. You see, the, the, the entanglement can go both ways. You can love a pastor too much. You can rely on a pastor too much. And not develop your own relationship with the Lord or with each other in a way that's appropriate. So that you look to the pastor to be certainly the one who leads, certainly the one who teaches, certainly the one who loves. But not the one who is needed in a bad way. Now there's a book um, that is written to pastors. It's called The Unnecessary Pastor. And it's good for us pastors to know that for the great work that God is doing, we're actually unnecessary. We're privileged to play a part. But we're not the needed puzzle piece that makes everything fly. And it's good for congregations to learn too. And you will just by the discipline of having to hear so many different voices over the course of the summer that you need the Lord. And Nate is most certainly the man the Lord has given you. But you need the Lord much more than you need Nate. This uh, particular text is one that is uh, near and dear to me for a variety of reasons, some of which you'll hear autobiographically as we go through the sermon. Um, And one that I think is helpful for you all this summer as you think about uh, where your reliance is, where your identity is found. Um, Identity is one of those really sort of tricky things. Um, I'm just passing through a period where I've spent uh, 16 years uh, as the lead pastor uh, of a local church. And I'm now in a transition period myself. Uh, In another month or so here, I'll transition to uh, the formal category. Presbyterian gives it as laboring out of bounds. I'm going to work for uh, a religious nonprofit, a ministry that I help start with a couple of other guys and do, um, well, what you heard Bob talk about this morning. Just do a lot more of it. A lot more of pastoring pastors, which is a great love that I have found for my own life that I really enjoy and is a great need in the kingdom of God is who pastors the pastors. And uh, that's what I'm going to have the great privilege of doing more of. But in that transition um, of realizing, I was writing a note some weeks back to one of my own congregants and I signed it, Pastor Matt. And in the back of my mind, what I heard was, yeah, but not much longer. And really what that was, was in my own mind, in my own heart, realizing that, that I was too wrapped up with that. I was too tight with that. My sense of who I am is a little too wrapped up with being able to sign something. Pastor Matt. You see, it... Certainly pastors run into this, but we're, I think, not the only ones. Uh, The Corinthians, of course, are in an identity crisis of their own. Um, Some of them, if you know the the main thrust of what's going on as you go through the book of Corinthians, at least in the section that we're in, is the congregation is split. And they're split. Actually, this isn't bad. We've got one third, 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 okay. So, uh, Apollos, Paul, because he would have been loved by the most people, and Cephas. Right? And you have these people saying, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And Paul's trying to write back to them going, 
Now, does he write back to them and he goes, well, you know, it's actually, it's actually very nice to be referred to that way. Thank you. Just don't mind, you know, Apollos and Cephas. They're just schlubs. No, that's what we would do. But that's not what Paul does, interestingly. He says, no, actually, not even referring to me that way is correct. You miss the point if you're thinking about it like that. And it's a point that we, that we often miss. We often try and identify ourselves with someone or something that will give us some sense of stability in our identity, of who we are, of how we regard ourselves. Uh, a recent cultural manifestation of this um, can be found uh, in the musical Hamilton. Um, I am an official uh, Hamilton nut. I should have checked this on my phone this morning, but on the, uh, the music app on my phone, it records for you how many times you have listened through something. Maybe some of you know that. If you don't, you'll all be checking your phones later, not now. Um, but if you look at the entire Hamilton album, two hours and 26 minutes, I think the last time I checked, I was near 40 times listening through the entire thing. Um, it would be an understatement to say that I'm a Hamilton nut. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that is, but one of the reasons is that the inner psychology uh, between the two main characters, uh, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, is absolutely fascinating. It's striking to me, the interplay between them that eventually ends up with Burr actually killing Hamilton. And it, one of the things that's going on there for both of them is a sense of identity, of what they can put their, their hat, what they can hang their hat on that says, that's who I am. Uh, if you've listened to it all, Alexander Hamilton is consistently labeled in the musical, a bastard orphan immigrant. Bastard orphan immigrant. You know, some of you have name tags. Bastard orphan immigrant. And that's the way you walk around all the time. That was his sense of identity, which is, of course, why it's so attractive that the line that you hear recurring in the early part of the musical the line you hear is, in New York, you can be a new man. See, that was the attraction of moving up from the Caribbean to New York, was that in New York, Alexander Hamilton could be something that he wasn't. He could have a new identity. You see, Alexander Hamilton had very many um, prodigious uh, accomplishments, achievements, but they shouldn't be mistaken for his goal. That's not what he was after. He did a lot. He's on your $10 bill for a reason. Read the history. One of the reasons that, uh, uh, side note, um, uh, the playwright, Lin-Manuel Miranda, one of the reasons that he picked primarily hip-hop as the way to communicate what he wanted to about Hamilton was because uh, hip-hop has the fastest number of words permitted of any song form. And there was so much he wanted to communicate. He was like, there's no way I can get it all in unless we do this with hip-hop. And there is an enormous amount that you will learn about history and people and psychology, <laughs> should you listen. He used hip-hop to stuff in all of those achievements, all of that interpersonal play. Alexander Hamilton died two years older than I am right now. 
But his accomplishments were not what he was after. And identity was what he was after. Identity in Christ is uh, the most important thing that you can gain on this earth. Uh, Without a firm identity in Christ, you and I don't know what we're capable of. What we're capable of as we work for an identity. And I'll distinguish that later for you in the sermon here, the difference between uh, working for an identity and receiving an identity. A healthy church has healthy congregants. A healthy congregant is one who has a firm identity in Christ uh, that serves, that identity in Christ serves as the foundation of life, of relationships, and of ministry. In building identity in Christ, uh, one could say, is the consuming goal of the Apostle Paul. Maybe you've never thought about the Apostle Paul's writings that way, but if you look at them as a whole, Paul writes to churches having troubles, and what does he consistently do first? He re-preaches the gospel to them. He tells them what it is and who they are in Christ because of what God has done. And then he tells them, based on what God has done in Christ and who you are in Christ, this is the way that you ought to live, to live out your identity in Christ. It's the consuming goal of the Apostle Paul. And its identity in Christ is what underlies the inner psychology of Paul. And that inner psychology is so different than Alexander Hamilton's that you wonder if they're even of the same species. How do we know Paul's inner psychology? Well, he tells us. And God tells us for our good. He tells us what was going on in Paul's heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This particular text we're going to make our way through works best um, from bottom to top. So we're going to go first to verse 5 where we're going to find out what the problem is. Uh, Some of you are going to notice if you've read that little book or heard the sermon uh, by Tim Keller, if you read the little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, there is some overplay here. Uh, some things that are new and different, but some, some you'll find some correspondence, and so I certainly am in debt uh, to that little book. If you're taking notes, we've now made it to the first point, which is to see creaturely judgment as the problem. To see creaturely judgment as the problem. Look with me at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. So there's the issue. There's the problem. They were pronouncing judgments, and it was before the time. They weren't the ones, as we'll find out in just a second, and they were doing it ahead of time. So actually, two problems. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. Well, when's the time? It's when the Lord comes. And when the Lord comes, it's going to be a sort of judgment that's going to be different than what humans can do, because he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, And he will disclose the purposes of the heart, those things that you fear and hope that no one will ever find out. The Lord brings to light and covers with the blood of Christ, thankfully. Then, once the Lord has come, each one will receive his commendation from God. He'll receive his Well done, good and faithful servant. You took the gifts you gave me. You relied upon the Holy Spirit. You used them for my glory as we sung about. 
and people came to know me as a result. So down the road, when Jesus returns, hidden things will be brought to light, purposes of the heart will be disclosed, and each one is going to receive his commendation from God. And the direction is, do not pronounce judgment before the time. You see, here was the problem. Creatures were judging ahead of time. What's the problem with creatures, with people like you and me, uh, limited as we are? We don't have the ability to see the hearts. Uh, I know Ed a little bit. Ed knows me a little bit. We know each other some externally. I don't know Ed's heart. Ed doesn't know my heart. But don't we fairly frequently think that we can peer in and we can figure out, oh, that's what's going on. I see. With the all-consuming eye. Creatures don't have the ability to see the heart. And so when we judge, we proudly judge in darkness, assuming we know what actually we can't. Uh, this command is actually fairly simple. Uh, it's not simplistic, it's not easy, but it is simple. The command to us is to not arrogate to ourselves God's prerogative to judge men's hearts. To not arrogate to ourselves God's prerogative to judge men's hearts. But you should note as well, and you'll see as we move up in the passage, uh, that Paul doesn't simply have reference to other people and him judging them or him judging other people, but also our judgment of ourselves, of us getting into our own heads and judging ourselves. We can, in our pride, certainly with our words, knock down other people. We, we can kick somebody else verbally behind their back or right to their face. We can knock someone else down to try and form an identity for ourselves, to lift ourselves up. But we can also just puff ourselves up. We can judge ourselves as worthy. We can commend ourselves before the time when God will make that ultimate evaluation. So there's the problem. Creaturely self-judgment. Let's keep working our way up the passage and be sure that we don't fall into a trap. See, a trap could be uh, that as we're going along here and we're saying, well, I'm not going to be judged by anybody else. Well, then I'll just judge myself. I'll just do it. I'll just, I'll be the judge and jury of myself. And Paul wants to help you see, God wants to help you see that you shouldn't fall to secondly then for self-justification. Look at the latter part of verse 3 and then verse 4. The second full sentence of verse 3, Paul says, In fact, I don't even judge myself. I would like to be there. I would like to experience that. I would like to live like that. Uh, the critiques that other people have of me hurt, but I only hear them somewhat infrequently. Or the words that I speak to myself, it feels are incessant. And I listen to myself, which is not very smart. Paul goes on and says, well, you could think, you know, be, well, he's not judging himself because he's great. Of course, he's an apostle. Come on. 
And Paul goes on, he says, I'm not a, the verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I, I think I'm clean. But you know what? Let's not even consider that, though. I'm not thereby acquitted because I think I'm clinging. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul refused to be a determiner of his own righteousness. He refused to be the pronouncer of his own acquitting. He placed himself into the hands of his faithful Savior. That's the way we put it in Heidelberg 1, right? I trust myself into the hands of my faithful Savior. Body and soul, life and death. Now, you might look at this and go, uh, it's the Lord who judges me, and you're looking at that phrase, and that's not life for you. That's not freedom. That's not goodness. That feels like death. And I think it does feel like death. It can feel like you're fearing judgment if you don't understand the crucial role that Jesus plays. It's already been said in the service quite well. But uh, realize that that's only scary if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not realizing that Jesus solves both of our main problems. So here's, we got two problems, two solutions, right? So the two problems are, um, God says, do all of this, and we fail to do it. And God says, um, don't do these things, and then we do it. So we have two problems. We've both sinned, and we haven't done what God said to do. And Jesus comes along, and he's given the Spirit without measure, and he does everything. He fulfills all righteousness for his people. For everyone who entrusts himself to him, he fulfills all righteous, all righteousness. And then he dies. Not because he himself is a sinner, not because he deserves it. In fact, it was the most unjust thing that's ever happened, was for Jesus to be killed. And yet he dies not because he's a sinner, but because he's dying with the sins of all of God's people placed on him. He's dying for their sakes. And so as you entrust yourself to your faithful Savior Jesus, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism 1, uh, both of your problems are being solved. You have sin that you've done where you deserve God's judgment. Jesus dies for that. You need righteousness, positive righteousness to stand before God. And in Christ you have that because he fulfilled all righteousness. And so when you stand in Jesus, you can hear it is the Lord who judges me. And you can go, I know how that's going to turn out. I already know what that verdict is. Because in Jesus, as I trust in him, I hear this is my beloved son. That's what I hear. Is that what you hear? This is my beloved daughter. Is that what you hear? Friends, that's what it means to trust in Christ is to be able to hear that. It's what God wants to speak, as I'll say a little bit later, over the table. And this, friends, is why you should entrust yourself to Christ turning from your sins. This is the freedom that we have. Uh, remember, I think that sometimes we can get the Apostle Paul wrong. We can think that he was some sort of superhuman. He's even accused of being a super apostle, all this kind of stuff, whatever. No. 
He got some gifts. He was indwelt by the Spirit. God used him to write. That's all. Regular guy. I had the opportunity to meet somebody famous once, and I came back to my congregation all excited, and one of the ladies came up to me afterwards, and she said, so I, got to, I heard you got to meet so-and-so. And I was like, yeah. And she looked at me and she said, did he put his pants on one leg at a time? That was a really, really good moment for me, actually. Because my eyes were still very starry and hers were, hers were just steel. She had been through a lot more than I had. And she knew that no matter how famous we think somebody is, they're just a regular person. Who speaks to you, certainly it is God speaking to you through these words that Paul wrote. But remember that this is just simply Paul living as a believer. This was his inner psychology. This was him living out a repentance and faith lifestyle every day. He rejected self-justification. He didn't say, I justify myself. He said, I trust in Christ. I trust myself to the Lord. It's him who judges me. And you do the same thing. You reject self-justification when you throw yourself anew on God's mercy each day. That's why in our services we confess our sins. It's a model for you. So that each day you'll throw yourself anew on God's mercy because it's your only hope. It's my only hope is to entrust ourselves to Christ. Now when you do that, when you throw yourself on God's mercy, you can then third feel a freedom of identity in Christ. Look with me at these first three verses. This is my heart for you, for me, is that we would feel the freedom of identity in Christ. Look at what God says here through Paul. This is how one should regard us. So we're thinking about uh, self-regard. How is it that you should be regarded? Should I be regarded as Pastor Matt? Should you be be regarded as um, of Ed or of Austin or of Phil or Theo or of Ed? Well, maybe of Ed because he led worship this morning. But how should you regard yourself? How should you think of yourself? Here's what Paul says. This is how one should regard us. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ, stewards of, in the context here, the gospel mysteries of God. See, most of us, when we're trying to form an identity, when we're trying to work for an identity, when we're trying to find something to hang our hat on, the identity revolves somehow around us, around what we've done or who we are, what we've accomplished, right? What we've overcome, what obstacle we've pushed through. Notice that these are not at all about what we've done about what I've done and what you've done. They don't revolve around us. They don't revolve around what I think of myself. They don't revolve around what you think of me. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And it's required of stewards. And the elders in our church uh, years ago 
uh, the Lord wanted to teach him something very significant about uh, the difference uh, of what a steward is. And the, the difference really, um, who owns this? The, ch- the church owns it. Okay, so Ascension owns this, right? Who moved it up here today? Peter. Thank you, Peter. So is Peter the owner of this? But Peter was the steward of it today, right? You had the responsibility for it, to care for it and to get it to here. See, that's the difference between an owner and a steward, right? An owner considers, this is mine, all mine. And aren't we self-protective like that? Someone critiques us and we come along and we go, no, 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 that reputation is mine and you will not assail it. Paul says, hmm, steward. Now that's a very different thing. A, A steward has responsibility for someone else's stuff. They don't own it. They have responsibility to somebody else. It doesn't revolve around them. Peter's probably even embarrassed that I embarrassed him. Because he didn't do it for you to know, for me to know. He was just the steward. And that's the way stewards are. It doesn't have to be about them anymore. Now, When we think about identity as something that doesn't revolve around us, that's not very reassuring to self-esteem. Keller's got a great riff in The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness about self-esteem in the history of it. I'll let you read it there. Um, Let me just put it really bluntly. I'm from New York. It's one of the reasons I like Hamilton. There's lots of New York references. There's lots of digs against New Jersey. That's what New Yorkers do. It It is the armpit of America, after all. Now, One of the things, (laughs) sorry, couldn't resist. One of the things um, that we have been convinced of in modern Western culture is the problem with all of us is we don't have enough self-esteem and that the solution to everything is if everyone had more self-esteem, all would be good. And Keller can give you the history of that thought and why it's actually profoundly broken. Uh, let me put it to you bluntly this way, because this is what New Yorkers do. We have the freedom to be blunt. Um, the gospel will never come and reassure your self-esteem. The gospel comes as a message to me and to you and says, um, actually, you bring nothing to the table except sin and brokenness and error and mistake and faults. If you bring something else to this table, you're mistaken. The gospel says, come as you are because you'll be received not for how great you are, but for how great Christ is. And so the gospel never comes and reassures your self-esteem. The gospel never comes and says, oh, it'll be great if you'll be known for... And fill in the blank. What would you like to be known for? Recognize that however you fill in that blank, somebody comes and says, well, what, after, after they die, what do you want in your tombstone? What would you like to be known for? 
And when you fill in that blank, you will find the thing that will crush you. Because if you get it, you'll be the most outrageous, proud, egotistical, insufferable person that there ever could have been. Because you'll have made it. And if you don't get it, you will live depressed and down and frustrated. And you'll kill everyone around you with your foul mood. You see, this is the great danger of trying to find an identity inside of ourselves. It's what we do, though. I mentioned earlier that I'd mentioned this difference between uh, working for an identity and receiving an identity. So here's, what's, here's what working for an identity looks like. If I work for an identity, the way that I construct my days, my schedule, my life goals, the way that I interact with um, people who are significant around me, whether it's spouse or kids or other people or whatever, all of you, if I'm working for an identity, welcome. You're in my service. Because my entire life is constructed in such a way that somehow I will be able to grab from the tatters of what life is an identity for myself. And I'm going to try and grasp it from all of you. That's what working for an identity looks like. And yes, I've described it the way that preachers do it. But all of you do it too. All of you have some way where you're trying to reach out and grab something and say, if I only had or if I was only thought about this way or if I only could get this published or this done or something like that, then finally I would be somebody. That's working for an identity. What is offered to you by God through Jesus Christ is simply to receive an identity. Here's the difference. What do you do in order to be received by the Father? Well, you've got to stop sinning, and you've got to do lots of really big things. You've got to give a lot. Wait, sorry. That was heresy. Don't believe any of that. What do you have to do in order to be received by the Father? I've got nothing. Please receive me for Jesus' sake. And when you do that, when you bring nothing, you get everything. But if you bring something, you get nothing. That's the gospel, though. You bring nothing, you bring the tatters of an identity you've tried to work for, and you say, Father, receive me for Jesus' sake. And he says, oh, welcome. I've been waiting to give you freedom. You are well-loved. You're in my family. Live in the joy of that's the difference between working for an identity and receiving one. Can you receive beloved of the Father and dwell in it and, and steep in it and enjoy it and live out of that? That's the freedom of identity in Christ. Now, why is working for an identity so dangerous? Why is it bad? Almost everybody does it. So I've done it most all of my life. Now I try and avoid it. What's wrong with working for an identity? It's what Alexander Hamilton did his whole life. 
But if you've read his life story, you realize that it's death. Uh, what working for an identity does is it puts me and those around me on a treadmill. That's an illustration from Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges, which you should read if you haven't. But it puts me and everyone around me on a treadmill. It leads to untold stress, fear, anxiety, and worry, and quite a number of other sins, as Alexander Hamilton found out. But if I can simply receive with an open hand by faith what God simply grants to me for Christ's sake, then life is vastly, vastly simpler. And best of all, you're free. But with me, Apostle, modeling this for us, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Now that is a great life. It's a very small thing that I be judged by you. Wouldn't that be nice to say, to be able to say in your heart to the people around you that you're not constantly working internally for the favor of people? And you're not working for your own favor. In fact, I don't even judge myself. But because you're received by God, you live in that. And because of that, you're free. Imagine a life where you aren't consumed by self-justifying thoughts. That you're not uh, having with yourself inward pep talks to maintain some sense of self-respect or you aren't secretly going into conversations with people, hoping to hear something from them that makes you have some shred of self-esteem. Imagine a life where you don't seek that from yourself or from anyone else, because you already have the verdict in Christ. You already have my beloved son, my beloved daughter. And so you don't have to hear it from yourself, and you don't have to hear it from anybody else. And that doesn't make you um, mean or uncaring. In fact, it frees up. It makes possible the opportunity to care freely. Not to care for something that it can get back to you or for a compliment that would come back to you, but just that you could care freely. See how it doesn't revolve around yourself anymore? And that's what we're seeking for. Actually, it's when that, what I've come to call heart chatter, it's when that chatter diminishes because of an active work of faith in Christ that you're free to follow God, that you're free to follow His commands, that you want to do with a renewed heart. Those things that involve loving God and loving neighbor, serving Christ and his people, serving those who don't yet know the freedom of knowing him. It also makes a fabulous church when it's filled with free people because then you feel free to serve each other as servants of Christ. As the Corinthians found out, of course, the converse is also true, sadly. 
and I pray it isn't the case here. God's design in sending His Son for us is freedom. It's for freedom He's won for us. It's freedom He's won for us by Christ, by the work of His Son in our place. This is part of what God is speaking to you as you come to His table today. He's trying to say to you, don't you see my heart for you? That I'm for you? That freedom is my design for you? Can't you see this is why I sent my son to be broken and his blood poured out so that you could be free in him? Won't you then embrace that kind of freedom? The freedom that comes from having a firm identity in Christ. And won't you enjoy God? We're giving that to you freely because of Christ. Let's pray together.